Good morning. It's good to see everybody today. Feels like I've only been here about once in the last month. Seems like that way. Uh, but it's great to be here. It's great to see all of you, as Nathan always says. Uh, it's great to see your smiling faces. And if you're not smiling, you should be, because it's a blessing to be here. It's always a blessing to be with God's people, and it's always a blessing to be in the presence of God and be able to come here and have the freedom to worship God without having to fear what man might do to us. And I think that's a blessing we take for granted. Um, I'm going to talk today about forgiveness and not be, uh, I want to be clear about something. I've spoken about forgiveness quite a bit lately, but this one uh, was, was one that I've been asked to speak on in Alabama at the Southern Regional Meeting. Uh, they gave me three specific sub points to talk about. And so uh, you're the guinea pig this morning. And uh, y'all always get my rough draft. So uh, this will kind of be a honing process for me. And I think it'll be a good study for us. <clears throat> I, I think that forgiveness is a, is a great struggle for us at times. And because there's so many different avenues, if you will, of forgiveness that are taught about in Scripture, sometimes it's hard to put all those things in their place uh, and be able to discern what our responsibility is in the realm of forgiveness. And so uh, the topic that I was assigned was, am I required to forgive? So we're going to look at three different subpoints, as I said. One of those is why we must forgive. Secondly, are there circumstances that warrant withholding forgiveness and we'll make that more clear in a little bit and number three how do we cultivate a heart that is willing to forgive and these last two will sort of have some overlap so uh, as we go through those two points we're going to kind of jump in and out and mold them together I want to start in Matthew 18 15 through 17 where Jesus said moreover if your brother sins against you Tell him, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. I wanted to read this passage at the beginning to say this. God takes sinning against someone very seriously. It's not something that God looks at and goes, hey, it's not a big deal. It's such a big deal that he says, if there's an interpersonal problem where a brother sins against a brother, it's such a big deal that if that offender doesn't repent, you take it. If he never repents, you take it all the way to the church and the church will administer a removal of fellowship from that person. They will no longer look at them as a brother. They'll look at him as a heathen and a publican. That's a big deal. But you know what? This process that Jesus gives us doesn't work against someone that's not in the church. You ever thought about that? You think you can go to somebody that's not within the church and say, hey, we have decided we're removing our fellowship from you. They, they go, you're crazy. <laughs> we can't do that. So the question then becomes, is this a principle that applies in every situation? The answer is no. And the other question is this, is every time that a brother offends me, is that worthy of me taking it all the way to the church, or can I just forgive that person and not take it all the way to the church? 
And we're not going to have time to explore every facet of that today. But I just want you to understand, God takes this very, very seriously. The first reason why we must forgive is because we are forgiven. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. This is the first reason why we must forgive, why we are required to forgive, because we are forgiven. And we're going to expound on that a little bit later. Number two, we know this passage very well from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus gave what we often call the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us, if we don't forgive, we ourselves won't be forgiven. So the first one is, because we've forgiven, the second one is, so we will be forgiven. So Jesus says this, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You know, we talk about conditions for being saved, conditions for being forgiven. Is this not a condition for God's forgiveness? It absolutely is. James says this in James 2.13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. These two aspects um, of dealing with offenses are what I, where I think the rubber meets the road. It's, it's where we fall on one side or the other. Are we going to judge and condemn someone or are we going to show that person mercy and forgiveness? And this is a great place to start because James just puts it this way. Mercy's better than judgment. Mercy's greater than judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And he says, if we don't show mercy, we're not going to be shown mercy. God is merciful. And God calls us, he identifies us as his children. And so Jesus says this from our reading this morning, but love your enemies do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. I want to back up and I want to look at something in that first verse. What does he say? He says, if you do this, you will be sons of the Most High. See, he's connecting our sonship, our being a child of God, with how we deal with our enemies. He says, love them. Do good, lend, hoping for nothing in return. Then he says this, therefore be merciful. Be merciful as your father also is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. So I want to ask you a question this morning. And I'm going to have lots of questions as I always do. And I'm not looking for a verbal response. I just want us to think. So here's the first question. Do you have enemies? You know, often when we think about enemies, we'll think about somebody who has a different political opinion. That's not your enemy, okay? That's not your enemy. You may think you don't have any enemies. But I want to tell you something. If you're holding a grudge against someone and you resent that person and you're bitter against that person, you do have an enemy. They're your enemy. Because that's what resentment and bitterness does. It changes the way we view our relationship with the person. Someone we love wrongs us and we resent them for it and they become our enemy. And here's what 
Jesus says, be merciful just as your father also is merciful. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is an act of mercy. It's not a judicial act. It's not an act of justice. It's an act of compassion. It's an act of mercy. It is a releasing of a wrong that's been done. Whoops, push the button. Did you notice this part of this verse? For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Whew. That's hard. What's he connecting that with? He's admonishing us to be merciful, not just to the good, not just to the repentant, not just to the pious, but even to the unthankful and the evil. Why? Because that's who God is. Because God is merciful to us when we're unthankful. God was merciful to us when we were evil. He says, be like your father. So, are there circumstances that warrant withholding forgiveness? And the short answer to that is yes, there are. But, but let's see what those situations are. And we're going to try to divide this into kind of three uh, avenues, as I said earlier, and, and look at them this way because uh, the way forgiveness is given is different depending on the situation. So let's start with God's forgiveness. First of all, God's forgiveness is not exactly the same as our forgiveness. And one of the reasons why is because God's forgiveness is always judicial. He can acquit someone of their sins. I can't do that. You can't do that. And I mean in reality, we can't remove someone's sins. In other words, if I forgive someone for committing a sin against me, that doesn't mean that God forgave them. His terms for being forgiven are judicial, and God is going to forgive someone based on those terms that he set forth. That's not the realm that we're in, and our forgiveness is not judicial. The book of Romans, in Romans chapter 9, and there verse 8, it says, God has mercy on whom he wills. God has mercy on whom he wills. We need to understand that. And it's going to help us to forgive by understanding our forgiveness is not about saying that person has been acquitted of guilt. We'll come back to that in a little bit. There's also congregational uh, forgiveness, and it's a logical withholding. And what I mean by logical is it's not emotional. It's not, well, someone hurt my feelings, therefore we're going to put them out of the church. These situations like this, like we read in 1 Corinthians 5, where he says, I want you to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved. I want you to remove your fellowship from that person. I don't want you interacting with that person. Don't even eat with that person. It's all based not on emotion, but on logic. What is the logic? He says, it's commonly reported among you that this person is in blatant, unrepentant sin. And we want them to repent. That's what's logical about it. It is both provocative and protective. You say provocative. No, what I mean is it's to provoke a person to repentance. That's the purpose of withholding that forgiveness. Again, it's not, it, it's not Paul saying, look, because this guy's done this, everybody in the church resent that person. Everybody in the church hate that person. Everybody in the church be bitter. No, that's not the point. It's not about being bitter and resentful. It's not about anything emotional or mental. It's about removing a blessing from that person to try to provoke or to encourage them to repent of their sinfulness. That's the point. It is a res restorative 
forgiveness. So where we're going to focus our time and attention is on individual forgiveness. So first off, I want to ask you this. Are there any passages in the New Testament, any place, or Old Testament for that matter, where we see God saying it's okay to withhold forgiveness as an individual? You might be thinking of some. We may look at those today. But I couldn't find one. I found this one, okay? This one is in several places. It's in 1 Corinthians 5. It's in Matthew chapter 18. It's also in 2 Thessalonians 3. But I couldn't find this one anywhere. But here's the thing. When we withhold forgiveness, the way that we hold forgiveness is both mental and emotional. But that's also where forgiveness is to take place. It's a conscientious forgiveness. In other words, I'm removing my resentment and my hatred and my bitterness toward that person. It doesn't mean they're right with God. It may not mean they can come back to church. But I'm removing my hatred and my bitterness from the situation. It's a conscientious forgiveness. So, Matthew chapter 18, 21, Peter actually asked the question, can I withhold forgiveness? And he's basing it, his idea of basing withholding forgiveness is on the number of transgressions committed. So I guess that's somewhat logical if you're just thinking about it. He says, you know, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times. So he's thinking, okay, there's, there's going to come a point where somebody sins a certain amount of times where I can say, okay, uh, we've reached the limit. From now on, I'm, I'm not going to forgive you. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. I don't say seven, I say 70 times seven. And so I think sometimes we read that, we go, well, good, at least we have a way to quantify it. We have a number, 490, we forgive, and 491, we can start withholding forgiveness. But that wasn't what Jesus was teaching. And how do we know that wasn't what he was teaching? Because he gives us the parable of the king and the servants. And he explains to Peter and also to us what he means by 70 times seven. We're not going to take time to read that parable today, but I do want to pull something out of it because this is an example of what withholding forgiveness looks like. Matthew chapter 18, 28 through 30, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. This is withholding forgiveness. That's what it is. He says, no, I'm not going to give you more time. I'm not going to have any more patience with you. You're going to pay me what you owe or you're going to prison. That's, that's your terms. I want to notice this, these two words in this passage right here. Would not. It does not say he could not. It doesn't say he should not. It simply says he would not. And what that means is he made a decision he willed not to forgive. And that's something else we need to understand about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a capability situation. It's not that we're incapable of forgiving. It's that we're unwilling to forgive. It's a matter of will. 
That's why God commanded it. Because he under, God doesn't command us to do things we're incapable of doing. He commands us to do things we can do. But we're just sometimes unwilling to do. And that's what this man has done. He has willed not to forgive this person. So sometimes we say, well, I'm working on it. I haven't forgiven that person yet, but I'm working on it. Are we though? What does that look like? How do we look at our situation and determine whether or not we actually are working on it or we're just saying, look, I don't want to talk about it. Because most of the time we say, I'm working on it. What we're saying is, I don't want to talk about it. Okay, if we really are working on it, that's good. Well, how do we work on it? Well, I'll tell you one way Jesus told us to work on it is to pray about it. That was in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, love your enemies. And then what did he say? Pray for them. Pray for them. Not pray that something bad happens to them, but pray for them and pray for your heart and pray that you can forgive. That's a way to work on it. There's another way to work on it. Jesus said this in Luke 17, 3. He said, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he doesn't repent, you don't have to forgive him. He said, whoa, that's not what that verse says. That's not at all what that verse says. No, you're right. It's not what that verse says. But this is the way we apply it. Right? We said, well, here's why I'm withholding forgiveness. They haven't repented. And we want to throw that word fully in there too. They haven't fully repented. And so what we do is we take Jesus' teaching where Jesus is trying to teach his apostles and us to forgive people and we turn it around and we say, well, what Jesus was actually doing was giving us a means of justification to not forgive a person. That's not what Jesus was doing. But that's how we often apply it. But you know what really happens is we create these very inconsistent standards that cannot be met when we talk about repentance. What the verse actually says is rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. You know what I don't like to do if somebody upsets me or they wrong me? I do not like to tell them about it. Do you? Do you like to go to somebody and say, look, what you did was wrong? Not only do you not like it, they don't like it. Who wants to be told that they did something wrong? Nobody does. So why in the world would Jesus tell us to do that? Because if we're working on it, that's step one. That's step one. If you really are struggling to forgive someone for them sinning against you, step one is you go and you tell them what they've done. And we say, no, they know what they did. They know what they did. Maybe not. Maybe they don't. And I'll tell you, you'll never know if they know what they did until you rebuke them. And then you're going to find out if they know what they did. And the other thing is this. You may not know what they did until you rebuke them. You may not know. You may think you know. This is about getting clarity. It's about getting everything out in the open 
And it's also about holding this person accountable for a sin that they committed. That part's important. If someone sins against us, he said, rebuke them. But what we'd rather do is not rebuke them. What we'd rather do is just go, look, they know what they did. I shouldn't have to tell them. And, you know, when they decide to come to me and repent, well, then I'll forgive them. Well, okay, then let's talk about repentance. What does that mean? Well, if, if they say they're sorry, that's not good enough. And if they do say they're sorry, well, we're, we're very likely to say, well, they said they were sorry, but they didn't mean it. Well, they meant it, but, but they didn't cry. Well, they cry, but they didn't come up before the church. Well, they came before the church, but they didn't get down on their knees. Well, they got on their knees, but they, and it's always what we do is we create these very inconsistent standards about what we think repentance actually looks like. When is the debt going to be satisfied? And when we look at it that way, when is the debt going to be satisfied? Let me tell you something. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not when the debt is paid. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is when the debt isn't paid. And I let it go. But this passage doesn't even say you don't have to forgive them if they don't repent. Jesus actually took it further than that. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. You don't talk about getting old. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've had people in my life, as I'm sure you have, that... It's like every time, they, every time you turn around, they do something that upsets you. But seven times in a day? I mean, by that point, you're kind of looking at that person going, I don't know what I did to you to make me in your crosshairs, but there's obvious you have a vendetta. And we're going to start judging intentions and motives and all those things. But I think that's part of the point here. You want to talk about fully repent? True repentance, have somebody sin against you seven times in a day. By about time number three, you're going to go, your words are meaningless. You're saying I repent, but I don't believe you. You know why? Because it's not genuine. So what's the point? It's not about being a repentance inspector. It's not about weighing the evidence. It's about us forgiving Yes, they may not really be sorry. Yes, it may just be empty words, but Jesus said, if they say I repent, you forgive them. You know why? Because it's not about justice. It's not about justice. This is tough. But we have to cultivate a heart that is willing to be forgiving. That is, we have to develop the kind of heart and character that is inclined toward forgiveness. And the question is, how do we do that? And I'm going to say some things that are very blunt. Not that you're shocked by that, but I'm going to say some things that are kind of blunt. And, and I'm going to do that to help us as people who are offended Look at it in an accurate manner. And when I say these things, it's intended to challenge us who are struggling and withholding forgiveness. And, and because I'm doing that and, and focusing on that, someone might think that I'm being overly sympathetic toward an offender or someone who sinned. And I'm, it, that's not the case. 
We're not minimizing what was done. We're not minimizing the sin that was committed. And we're certainly not minimizing the harm that was done. It was wrong. It was sinful. We cannot justify it. So that's not the point. The point is for us as the offender, uh, I'm sorry, as the offended rather, struggling and withholding forgiveness, how do we become a merciful person? How do we cultivate a heart of forgiveness? Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with what measure you meet or you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye that you will see clearly, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, while this is absolutely not a teaching of Scripture that negates all judgment, that condemns all judgment, this is a very loud caution. And here's the caution. Judge yourself first. Judge yourself first. Be willing to judge yourself by the same standard that you are judging your offender. That's hard. It's really hard to do. To look at someone who's offended us, but view ourselves first. And, and what this passage is about is seeing clearly, to make righteous judgments. Seeing clearly, that's what Jesus says. Remove the plank so you can see clearly. And often we don't see ourselves clearly, and so that's part of the problem. And, and the, the issue is if we don't see ourselves clearly, we don't see them clearly, we're never going to forgive that person. We have to be able to see ourselves clearly. So Miranda saw this before church. She said, Ian's yelling at us. I, okay, I'm fine with that. I'm not going to yell at you. But, but we ought to look at this and go, that's obvious. That's obvious. It is obvious, isn't it? It's not always obvious. Because again, forgiveness is not, uh, our forgiveness toward a person is not about justice. We're not God. But when somebody wrongs us, it, it kind of creates this, this, this uh, area where we're looking at them differently and we're also looking at ourselves differently. See, we're conditioned by our society and by the world to believe that if someone offends you, then now you're in this place of righteousness and they're in this place of wickedness. And so we begin to view them very differently and then we treat them differently. You say, well, well what's your point about we're not God? We're not perfect in our judgment, for one. We're not perfect in our judgment. We're not sinless. And we're also not responsible for either retaining or forgiving someone's guilt. We're not a righteous judge. And our refusal to forgive someone, it may have nothing to do with their guilt or innocence, but I will tell you this, our refusal to forgive them does determine our guilt or innocence. And that's what makes it tough. Matthew 18, 32, going back to the parable, 
Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Have you ever stopped to wonder why this guy didn't forgive his fellow servant? We say, well, he was just a wicked person. Well, that may be true, but, but you know what he was unwilling to do when he went to talk to this man who owed him money? He was unwilling to look at himself and judge himself first. That was the whole problem. He never asked about his self. He never asked about his own forgiveness. And that's what the king is mad about. That's what he's upset at this guy about is this. He said, look, you have been forgiven. And not only have you been forgiven, you have been forgiven an unpayable debt just because you asked. Are we willing to see the offender and put ourselves in their position? He uses the phrase fellow servant. Why do you say that? Here's the problem. We have got, if we're going to forgive someone and we're going to cultivate a heart of forgiveness, we've got to do several things. Number one, let's quit looking down on our offender. Let's get off of our sanctimonious pedestal that we've created and let's stand there and look them eye level and see eye to eye because that's the level we're at. We're not righteous. We're not perfect. We haven't lived our lives and never offended or wronged somebody. The only reason we are right is because God imputed righteousness to us through his mercy and compassion, and he's asking us to do the same thing. Yes, they don't deserve your forgiveness. They don't deserve it. That's right. It's not about deserve. If it was, what about us? What do we deserve? Do we honestly think that we deserve God's forgiveness? Or that we've somehow merited or earned it through our active service and performance? Because we haven't. Are we willing to judge our own repentance the same way we have judged the, the offender's repentance? Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Sometimes the offense is great. I mean, pe people do some terrible things, and they hurt us, and they hurt us bad. And I, I think sometimes we have this very worldly idea that, that we can measure the impact of a sin and then determine whether or not it needs to be forgiven, can be forgiven, should be forgiven, or whether or not this person deserves something bad to happen to them. And maybe we really would never take it to the point of exacting revenge or vengeance against that person. But what about what we wish would happen to that person? Vengeance is God's. It's God's. You know, people justify what they do in response to someone who's sinned against them by saying, you don't know what they've done. If you knew what they, it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but, but as far as looking at it as whether or not I'm justified in my anger or in my hatred, that belongs to God. We're not God. Vengeance is not ours. What's he tell us? Give place to wrath. Give place to wrath. 
Number two, to condition our heart, to cultivate our heart, we must be willing to suffer wrong. You know, because we're told that every time some little inconvenience happens to us that we're a victim and that, that we should be appalled and outraged about every little thing that happens in the world, when something big happens and, and inevitably something big will happen, it even becomes much bigger than it actually is. We, we use that term or use that analogy, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Well, you know, when you live in a society where everybody's offended about everything and everybody's outraged about everything, then everything becomes a mountain. And then we start thinking about what is our right and we start thinking about ourselves. And so when somebody offends me, I'm worried about myself. I, I, I don't care about you or about what is your right. I just care about what is my right. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6 when we think about this. He says, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. Now, to give some context to this, he's talking about brethren going to law about possessions and about money and suing one another. And so he, he said, why would you even do that? But here's the greater principle. We often don't ever want the scale to be unbalanced, right? We don't want the scale to be unbalanced. We want people to make it right. So if they offend us, the scale's out of balance, you make it right. And what does Paul say? Hmm. That's not ex exactly the most important thing. He says, you're a child of God. Why don't you just allow yourself to be cheated? Just allow yourself to be wronged. Well, that's not right. That's not fair. That's right. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not about that. It's about deciding which hill to die on. And there are certain things that happen in life. There are certain times when people sin against us or they offend us. We've got to make a decision. Is this a hill worth dying on or should I just suffer wrong? Am I really going to take this before the church? Is it that bad? Or am I just going to say, you know what? I've been wronged. I've been wronged. And I'm just going to suffer. I'm going to allow myself to suffer. You know, this isn't the only place where this principle is taught. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21 through 23, here Peter writing says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now listen to 22 and 23. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. See, Jesus did not feel compelled to balance the scale. Even though he was righteous, he was a righteous judge. And if anybody could have exacted vengeance or responded in an aggressive or outraged way, it, could have, it would have been Jesus. But what did he do? He suffered. And what happened when he suffered? He did not threaten 
He did not speak evil toward them. In return, that's what the word revile means, who when he was spoken evil against, did not speak evil against those who spoke evil against him. But he did this instead. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. You ever really thought about that? What does that mean? You know, I think that I struggle to forgive somebody because I feel like, well, if you forgive that person and they didn't fully repent, you're kind of enabling that person. You're, you're encouraging their sin. And that, that's, that's not necessarily true. But we also look at it and we go, well, you know what? I'm the one that's suffering and they're not. So shouldn't they suffer first? And, and so we, 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 again, we're trying to balance the scale, but here's what, here's what this passage is saying. Jesus didn't do all that because he knew one day the scale will be balanced. It'll be balanced by God. Yes, injustice happens in life. Yes, people cannot make reparations for the sins that they commit against us. Yes, the debt is not paid. But if that's really what we're concerned about is things being fair, here's what you need to do. Take that out of your hands, put that in God's hands and say, okay, you deal with that, I'll deal with this. It's not your responsibility to make sure that things are fair. Just trust God that God will make that right. If your offender dies and they go to judgment and they deserve to be punished for what they did to you, God will take care of that. It's not our job. It's not our job to take care of that. Our responsibility is to be merciful. And that's the best way to cultivate a heart that's willing to forgive is to learn to love mercy. Not just learn to be merciful, but learn to love mercy. Micah 6 and verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I think we can probably all look at different events in life, different interactions in life, and, and identify times where we have been merciful. And, and I think God is glorified by that. But really, what I want to ask you today is this. Do you love mercy? Do you love it? How do you know? I want to look at a story from the Old Testament. This is a story of Jonah, and we're not going to go through the whole story of Jonah. But if you'll recall... Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh was a, a, a great city that was full of wickedness. They were ungodly people. They were full of violence. And Jonah didn't want to go. And so he tried to, to hide from God and run off. And eventually, after God taught him a lesson, he decides to go to Nineveh and to deliver this message that God had asked him to deliver to the Ninevites. So he delivers the message. And what happens is, the ruler of, of Nineveh, after hearing Jonah's message, says, Jonah's right. We are wrong. We're living wrong. We're going to start doing right, and we're not going to live in violence anymore. We're going to repent. Now, I'm thinking, as a preacher, as a prophet, you go in and tell a city, you're wrong, you need to repent, and they'll repent, that you go, yes, but not Jonah. How does Jonah react to their repentance? He's mad. <laughs> he is mad. Why is he mad? I'll tell you why he's mad. 
He wasn't mad that they repented. He was mad that God viewed the repentance and then was merciful to them. He thought they deserved to be destroyed. So it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in, the, in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Let's just really get the grasp of what Jonah is saying. This is the reason I didn't want to come here because I knew you'd forgive these people if they repented. What? That's right. God, I knew you were a God of kindness and love and that's why I didn't want to come here because I knew you'd forgive them. You think Jonah's got a view of himself that's accurate? And you know what he says? Just kill me. This is so hard for me to fathom and understand and deal with, I don't even want to live anymore. And so God asks a question that I think is good for us to ask ourselves. And God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? We're not talking about generically, is it right to be angry? What God is asking Jonah is, is it right for you to be angry that I've been merciful? You think Jonah loved mercy? And this isn't about indicting Jonah. But I think that it's easy to look at this story and go, man, this, this guy was not right. But what about us? Let me give you a hypothetical situation that's not so hypothetical. Somebody sins against us. They hurt us. And they also, in the process, hurt somebody else. And so we refuse to forgive that person. We don't think they deserve it. We don't want to forgive them, so we don't. But the other person that they offended in the same way forgives them. And we not only are mad at the offender, we get mad at that person. Because they forgave them. You ever been there? You ever been mad because other people forgave someone that hurt you? It's not really that different from why Jonah's angry. And so then we start creating enemies. And those enemies are the people who are merciful. Can you imagine that? Being mad at someone for being merciful? Do we really love mercy? I'll tell you, if we love mercy, not only will we not be angry with someone for being merciful, we will be glad and rejoice when mercy occurs. I'll tell you, it's really hard to tell somebody, I forgive you. I tell you, it's not only hard for you, it's hard for them. Because there's an inference in those words, I forgive you. Because what you're saying is, I forgive you for doing wrong. But we must forgive. And God expects his children to be merciful as he is merciful and to love mercy. So the last thing I want to leave you with today is, are we merciful? Do we love mercy like God loves mercy? Micah 7 and 18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. You may not think about this, but if you want to glorify God in your life, one of the greatest things that glorifies God is when his children forgive men 
their trespasses. You glorify God when you do that. You glorify God when you show mercy. You glorify God when you show compassion and pity. You glorify God when you and your humility recognize that you are not a righteous judge, but you are a sinner saved by God's mercy and grace, forgiven of a debt that is unpayable, and you give the mercy you've been given. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, press down. Do you need God's mercy today? God loves mercy. And no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, God wants to acquit you. He wants to remove your guilt. He wants to give you peace. Friends, if you're struggling with bitterness today, God wants you to bring that to him and put it in his hands. Commit it to him who judges righteously. Let him deal with it. And let's just move on and let those debts go. If there be one of either class, we ask that you'd come and have a seat as we stand and we sing the song selected.